Tonight, we are continuing our study of Isaiah, and we're still in the midst of this section of Isaiah that is mostly focused on the other nations around Judah and Israel. And so often this section, Isaiah 13 to 23, is called Oracles to the Nations. And last week I mentioned that one of the things to remember is that even though Isaiah is talking about these different nations, he's really not writing to those nations. He's really writing to God's people. And so he is showing them what God's plans are for all of these other nations around them. And God is going to judge them, all of these nations, because of their wickedness, because of the way that they've treated God's people. God is going to judge them. But I think that that serves a twofold lesson. One is it's a, it's a comfort to Judah, to God's people, because their enemies are going to be judged by the just and righteous God of the universe. But the other lesson I think that teaches to the people of Judah is you shouldn't put your trust in these people. And that, that was their temptation, was to put their trust in these national alliances with these other people. So you remember back in chapter 7 when Isaiah came to King Ahaz and said, ask for a sign, anything in, in the heaven above and the depths below. And the reason that Isaiah went to him is because King Ahaz was afraid. King Ahaz was afraid, and he was afraid of this alliance that had just formed between Israel and Syria. And so he was afraid of that alliance, and this Israel-Syria alliance was going to come and attack Judah. But instead of trusting in the Lord, King Ahaz of Judah decided, I'm going to go find help from Assyria. And so he sent a gift. He sent tribute to the king of Assyria to protect him from this alliance of Israel and Syria. And Isaiah went to him and said, no, you need to trust the Lord. Ask for a sign. God will even give you a sign to show that he will protect you, that this invasion of Israel, Syria won't happen. And King Ahaz wouldn't do it. He wouldn't ask for a sign. But Isaiah says, well, God's going to give you a sign anyway. But the lesson of all that, and, and I think one of the reasons why these chapters are here in chapter 13 to 23 is as a reminder to not trust in these nations because they will let you down. They will fail you. Your hope is not in human strength. Your hope is not in human alliances. Your hope needs to be in God because he is the true reality, the one who can really deliver you from harm and save you. And so that's, I think that's one of the main reasons why this section is here is to remind Israel God's on the throne and you don't need to put in your trust in these. You need to be putting your trust in God because he is ultimately the king. He's the ultimate power, not the king of Assyria, not the king of Babylon, not the king of Egypt. God is the ultimate power. And so tonight we're coming, we're continuing to, to walk through this section in chapter 17 and 18. And these are messages to, to Syria, to Israel, and then to Cush. And so first we'll look at the message to Syria. And this begins in chapter 17, verses 1 through 3. 
Isaiah 17 verse 1 says, a prophecy against Damascus. Now, Damascus was the the capital city. It was the main city of this uh, country, Syria. Now, remember, we're making a distinction between two countries, Syria and Assyria. So Syria is pretty much just right to the north of Israel. Assyria is a little bit farther north and east. And so Syria is the closer one, and they're the ones who are making this alliance with Israel, the 10 northern tribes. And so this is a message against Syria, against Damascus. And here's Isaiah's message. See, Damascus will no longer be a city, but will become a heap of ruins. The cities of Aror, and this is one of the cities on the eastern side of the Jordan River, probably on the very northern border between Moab and Syria. And this is another place in Syria. The cities of Aror will be deserted and left to flocks, which will lie down with no one to make them afraid. The fortified city will disappear from Ephraim. Now, Ephraim is Israel. So Ephraim, it being one of the main ten tribes, or one of the prominent tribes of the ten tribes of Israel, sometimes when Ephraim is referred to, it's talking about the whole nation of Israel, the ten tribes. And so you can see that there's this close association between Syria, Damascus, and Israel, Ephraim. There is this close association because of this alliance that they had formed against Judah. And so what Isaiah is saying, Syria is going to be judged, and their city, Damascus, and their other key places are going to be laid waste and become desolate. And then he brings in Ephraim, Israel also, to show that this alliance is going to result in Israel's downfall as well. So the fortified city will disappear from Ephraim and royal power from Damascus. The remnant of Aram, again, Aram is another name for Syria. So a lot of geographical terms being thrown around here. But Aram is another name for Syria. The remnant of Aram will be like the glory of the Israelites, declares the Lord Almighty. And you might think, well, that's, that's good, right? The remnant of Aram will be, will be like the glory of the Israelites. That sounds like a good thing. Except when you get to verse 4 and you see that the glory of the Israelites is nothing. Because Israel has been reduced to nothing. So in making this comparison between Israel and Syria, basically what Isaiah the prophet is doing is he is lumping them together in the same fate. Which is a lesson to the people of Judah. That if you align yourself with other nations for political or military purposes and you seek to find your hope or your protection in those alliances, well, those alliances where you seek your strength, they can also become your downfall. And so Israel had chosen to align itself with Syria, and they're both coming down together. That's, that's how these two are linked. And so Ephraim and Damascus, their, their glory is going to be taken away, and they're going to become nothing, desolate. And if you remember, this is in fulfillment of what Isaiah had said to King Ahaz back in chapter 7. Isaiah had said to King Ahaz, this threat 
from Israel and Syria, it's not going to succeed. It's not going to work. God is going to intervene and God's going to protect his people. And so Isaiah is speaking to that again, showing that Isaiah or that Israel and Syria are going to fall. So this is the message against Syria. It's going to become desolate, a heap of ruins. And then verse four transitions more into Israel. So verse three, link them together. Ephraim and Damascus. And now verses 4 through 11 are more directed toward Israel. And we see in verses 4 through 6 a time of weakness for Israel, where Israel's glory, its strength is going to fade. In that day, the glory of Jacob will fade. The fat of his body will waste away. So again, Verse 3 talked about the glory of Damascus being like the glory of Ephraim, but both of their glories are fading. They're, they're becoming nothing. And the fat of his body will waste away. Now, that's kind of odd language, but it's really a symbol, isn't it? It's a symbol. It's, it's figurative language. And basically, it is the picture of a person who is healthy, um, full, you know, they've well-fed, you know, healthy, but then becoming hunger and famished and after a famine, perhaps in extreme poverty, wasting away and becoming nothing. So that's the image and he applies it to Israel. So what you once had as power and wealth is going to waste away into nothingness. It will be as when reapers harvest the standing grain gathering the grain in their arms as when someone gleans heads of grain in the valley of Rephaim. And so he's, he's likening the fall of Israel to what's left over after harvesters go through a field. And a lot of this imagery comes from earlier in the Old Testament when God had told his people, when you go through the fields, leave some behind for the poor, for the weak, for the fatherless. And so what they would do is they would go into the field, the harvesters would go into the field, and this imagery of someone gathering the grain in their arms, what they would do is they would gather the stalks of grain around them like this, and then they, with their right hand, they would cut it. And then they all, since they already had it bundled up in their left arm, then they could tie it up. So they would grab it, they would cut it, and then they would tie it up. So that's kind of the image. And they would go through and they would, they would glean all of the usable grain and fruit from the field. And what was left over was left for the poor and the widows, the fatherless. And so what this image is showing is that he, Isaiah is saying, what's going to be left of Israel, what's going to be left of Syria is like what's left after the harvesters have already gone through. And all that's left are the remnants. And the Valley of Rephaim is uh, a reference to a valley a little bit south of Jerusalem. So this would be in Judah, a little bit south. And so that, that gives us a clue to who his audience is, doesn't it? He makes a reference to the Valley of Rephaim, which is in Judah. So he's writing to the people of Judah about what's going to happen to Syria and Israel. And this valley, a little bit south of Jerusalem, was a valley that was very important, agriculturally speaking. 
And it, it produced a large number of the crops for Jerusalem and the city in that area. And so it was a, it was a very important agricultural area, and it was where a lot of the produce came from. And so it, it would be like going into this, this field that was incredibly important, that produced a lot of food, but then coming to it after the grain is gone, after the harvesters have already gone through and it's just empty. And he says, that's what Israel and Syria are going to look like. Verse 6, he says, yet some gleanings will remain as when an olive tree is beaten, leaving two or three olives on the topmost branches, four or five on the fruitful bows, declares the Lord, the God of Israel. So the message is mixed. The message about Israel is mixed because, yes, there is judgment. And there is severe judgment coming. Why? Because Israel has been engaged in idolatry. The northern tribes of Israel, they've been wicked, engaged in idolatry, forsaking the covenant, followed a a line of kings that wasn't even the line of David. So they have been apostate from the days right after Solomon. And so there's judgment coming, and the judgment is going to come at the hands of Assyria, 722 B.C. Damascus, remember Damascus? They fell to Assyria in 732 B.C. A decade later... Israel fell to Assyria. And so their fates were very closely aligned, Damascus and Israel. And so judgment is coming, but there's another side of the coin. And that is, even though there will only be a remnant left, there will be a remnant left. And that's a remnant of grace, isn't it? So judgment is coming And it's going to be bad because there's only going to be a small remnant left. But the ray of light, the ray of hope, is that there is still a remnant left. And that God does not utterly destroy Israel, even though they deserved it, right? They deserved it. But God is merciful in holding back the full impact of his judgment. And he allows for a, a remnant to remain by grace. And so... That remnant then that's left is likely what's going to experience a revival, a turning back to God that is described in verses 7 and 8. And so in verse 7, it says, In that day, people will look to their maker and turn their eyes to the Holy One of Israel. Who is going to turn? Probably the ones that are left. And so what ends up happening then is God brings chastening. He brings judgment on his people, Israel. But what happens as a result? He purifies them. He purifies them. He takes away the chaff, if you will. And he leaves what he leaves left a righteous remnant by grace that then repents, turns to the Lord and looks on the Lord and turns away from their idols, the work of their hands and turns to their maker. So there's an intentional, I think, we're going to see it here in verse number 8. Verse 8 says, They will will not look to the altars, the work of their hands, and they will have no regard for the Asherah poles and the incense altars their fingers have made. Do you see, I think there's an intentional contrast between what they have made and turning to their maker. God is specifically referred to by this term, their maker, their creator. And that's in contrast to the, these little 
small, insignificant things that their own fingers have made. And so what's that talking about? What, what are these little things that they have made? It's talking about all the idols, right? All these idols, all these false, false objects of worship that they have made. And later in Isaiah, in the second half of Isaiah, he's going to bring this up again and show just the utter ludicrousness, if that's a word, the, the ludicrousness of someone making an idol with their own hands, with their own craftsmanship, and then bowing down to it as something to worship. And so here he's, he's drawing on that and saying, you're, you're making this with your hands, but really you need to be looking to your maker. And in that day, after the Lord judges and purifies his people, there will be a remnant who will do that. They will turn away from these idols, from these Asherah poles. And the Asherah poles, they're referred to many times in scripture. And they most likely have to do with the Canaanite false religion. Asherah in Canaanite religion was a goddess who was uh, believed in Canaanite religion to be a companion or a consort of Baal or Baal. And they would set up either, either actual trees or like poles, artificial trees, if you will. And they would use these in some way as a part of their religious rituals, as a part of the, this false Canaanite worship. And so you see these referred to in different places throughout Scripture. Sometimes they're called the groves, these sacred groves, or these poles, these Asherah poles, sacred trees. And so somehow this was a part of their false pagan Canaanite worship. And Isaiah is saying, when God purifies his people, they're going to turn away from all that. They're going to turn away from this false religion, all these gods that they've made with their hands, and these false poles and trees they've set up as worship, and they're going to turn back to the one true God, the one who made them. And so there is going to be a turning, but it's going to have to come through judgment. Judgment and then salvation for a remnant. And then we see a desolation that's still to come in verses 9 through 11. And most likely this is still talking about Israel. So there, there is judgment coming. There's going to be a remnant remain that are going to turn to the Lord but it's going to be a severe desolation. And that's described in verses 9 through 11. So verse 9 says, In that day their strong cities, which they left because of the Israelites, will be like places abandoned to thickets and undergrowth, and all will be desolation. You have forgotten God, your Savior. You have not remembered the rock, your fortress. Therefore, though you set out the finest plants, and plant imported vines. Though on the day you set them out, you make them grow, and on the morning when you plant them, you bring them to bud, yet the harvest will be as nothing in the day of disease and incurable pain. It's a pretty heavy description, isn't it? And it's all centered around the fact that in verse 10 it says, you have forgotten God your Savior. And one of the commentaries that I was reading, I think insightfully pointed back to Deuteronomy chapter 6 where in Deuteronomy chapter 6, Moses is warning the people ahead of time before they go into the promised land. And he tells them, when you go into the promised land and take over all of these cities and all these lands that your hands did not build, that God is just giving you as a gift, be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God. 
It's a warning from Moses to the people. And basically their whole history in the promised land has been a forgetting, a forgetting of God, their maker. And so the result is exactly what Moses warned would come in Deuteronomy. That if you forget the Lord, your God, if you forget your creator, here are the curses that will come. And that's exactly what's happening here that Isaiah is predicting. And so the, the irony is this, that when God was blessing Israel, when he brought them out of Egypt and brought them into the promised land, he gave them cities to inhabit that they didn't have to build. Well, guess what's going to happen now? Assyria is going to come, defeat them, carry them off, and others will come and live there in their cities that they didn't have to build. It's a reversal, isn't it? And why? Because they forgot the Lord. They forgot him. And so this is their judgment. And then we see in verse 11 that it's going to be a very severe judgment. And verses 10 and 11 talk about this idea of planting. That even though, even if you were to set out the finest plants, even if you were to invest all of your strength, all of your energy, even if you were to, to give great care to these plants and and you make them grow, and on the morning you plant them, and then you bring them to bud, almost as if you could make a plant grow in a day, which is impossible. But no matter how much care you give to these plants, at the end, there's going to be no harvest. Because God is going to bring his justice on a people that forgot the Lord. And then we see a message to the nations, verses 12 through 14. So Syria... Israel, their alliance, they're both going to fall together. And now we see kind of a broadening out in verses 12 through 14, uh, kind of a reference to all the nations. Woe to the many nations that rage. They rage like the raging sea. Woe to the peoples who roar. They roar like the roaring of great waters. And I think what Isaiah is referring to here is probably the great boasts and claims and plans of these mighty nations, whether it be Assyria or Babylon or Egypt, they seem so great. They seem so powerful and they roar and they give great boasts about what they're going to do and what they're going to accomplish. But the lesson here is you don't have to fear them because God is the ultimate king. So although the peoples roar like the roar of surging waters, when he rebukes them, they flee far away, driven before the wind like chaff on the hills, like tumbleweed before a gale. And so there are lots of images here, isn't there? So you have the images of a great sea, you know, rumbling and roaring and all of this uh, incredible power seeking to overtake you, but almost as if bringing in the image of the exodus he says, God's going to blow and rebuke those waters and push them back. And all, all these nations, these nations that are set up against God, that are set up against God's people, God's going to blow and they're going to be just like little pieces of dust. The chaff, the meaningless chaff that is blown away by the wind that isn't important to harvest. Or like a tumbleweed, it's like a dry, dead plant. A little bitty breeze comes through and it takes it away and it goes rolling down the hill. That's the image of these powerful nations. So from our perspective, 
all of these, these kings, these armies, these nations, they seem incredibly powerful, like the roaring, the raging of a mighty sea. But from God's perspective, they're like pieces of dust that he blows and they just fly away. It's almost like Psalm 2, where it says, why do the, the nations rage? And they, they conspire together against the Lord and against his anointed. But what does God do in response? He laughs. Psalm 2, he laughs at them. That's kind of the image here. All these nations, they're powerful, but to God, they're nothing. He is the mighty power. So in the evening, sudden terror. Before the morning, they're gone. This is the portion of those who loot us, the lot of those who plunder us. Who's the us? Probably the people of Judah. So God's people, God's covenant people, all these other nations, all their plans, all their boasting, nothing. In an evening, in an instant, God can take care of them. He can set up empires, but he can also take them down, can't he? He's the ultimate sovereign. And then chapter 18, very short chapter, seven verses, is a message against Cush. Now, depending on what translation you have, uh, you might see different words here used for this region, Cush. Some translations translate it as Ethiopia, some of them have it as Sudan. Some of them have it as Cush, which Cush is just the Hebrew letters put into English letters. So this is the region that, that he's referring to. And there is some confusion, there's some debate about exactly what region this is. But probably the, the best consensus is that it is a region to the south of Egypt that would probably be close to modern-day Sudan. And so Ethiopia might, be, might have been a part of this kingdom, but it, it would be wrong to think of it, geographically speaking, as the same as modern-day Ethiopia. It, it is probably closer to where modern-day Sudan is, farther south down the Nile River, just to the south of Egypt. And we, and we can see a little bit later on, too, in Isaiah, that, that Cush and Egypt are, are talked about sometimes together which puts them really close together geographically as well. And so this is probably that region just to the south of Egypt. And it says, Woe to the land of whirring wings along the rivers of Cush. And the rivers of Cush is probably the Nile River as the main river, but then also the little tributaries, little branches that break off into the land that they would get on and, and use as well. So, and it says, woe to the land of whirring wings. And some have suggested that this may have to do with the, the insects, the flying insects and the flies that occupy the Nile river basin. And they're just, there's lots of them and they can be loud at different times of, of seasons in the year. That's one way of understanding it. Another way of understanding it is in reference to the boats of papyrus that are making their way up the Nile River that are referred to in verse 2. So this, this noise could be insects of the Nile River, or it could be these, the sound of these boats moving up the Nile River. So this land, Cush, Nubia, is also what it's called in ancient history. But they send envoys by sea in papyrus boats over the water, and probably up the Nile River, up to the Mediterranean Sea area. And papyrus boats would have been very light 
small boats, maybe used for small fishing boats, just for a few people maybe to get on. In other words, not, not real big ships that would draw a lot of attention, but just small little fishing boats, papyrus boats. And so they go, and these messengers, these ambassadors, if you will, are coming up the Nile River. Go, swift messengers, to a people tall and smooth-skinned, to a people feared far and wide, an aggressive nation of strange speech whose land is divided by rivers. All of that is probably a description of this land of Nubia or Sudan or Ethiopia. And much like the Egyptians in the ancient world, they were clean-shaven, which is this reference to smooth-skinned. And then they're referred to as tall. And even later on in, in ancient history, we have the Greek philosopher and historian Herodotus who refers to these people in the same way. A very tall, smooth-skinned, clean-shaven, probably this land just to the south of Egypt. But it says they're an aggressive people, a people to be feared, a people whose land is divided by rivers. Again, probably the, the Nile and its tributaries that go out from the Nile. And one of the things that we know from this period of history is that there was a group of people, these Nubians, who had basically asserted strength and power and had for a period of time exerted dominance over a large section of Egypt. Normally we think of Egypt as one of the dominant powers of the day, and oftentimes they were, but that power ebbed and flowed. And during this particular time, in the, in the late 700s BC, this, these uh, Ethiopians or Nubians, if you will, they exerted power over Egypt and essentially set up their own dynasty, the 25th dynasty in Egypt. And so that's what's referred to here by this, this strong people. But there's a message of judgment for them. All you people of the world, you who live on the earth, when a banner is raised on the mountains, you will see it. And when a trumpet sounds, you will hear it. So this is a kind of a warning to everyone. This banner is a rally cry, a rallying point. The trumpet sounds, the nations take notice of it. This is what the Lord says to me. I will remain quiet and will look on from my dwelling place like shimmering heat in the sunshine, like a cloud of dew in the heat of harvest. For before the harvest, when the blossom is gone and the flower becomes a ripening grape, he will cut off the shoots with pruning knives and cut down and take away the spreading branches. Now, that's it's very picturesque language, isn't it? It's metaphorical figures of speech, word pictures. And what's interesting is the way he describes the Lord in verse 4. He describes the Lord in verse 4 as quiet, looking on, kind of waiting patiently while all of this transpires down here. And I think a very helpful application that I read from one of the commentaries is this, and that is just because the Lord looks like he's not involved doesn't mean that he's not involved. Just because the Lord may be being quiet for a period of time doesn't mean that he's not aware of what's happening in his world. And it doesn't mean that he doesn't have a plan that's unfolding. So 
there's all of this busy activity going on down here. And it's kind of described in verses 1 through 3 where you have these envoys, these messengers. They're going from this place to this place. And they're, what's the purpose of ambassadors or envoys? They're probably seeking some alliance between powers. So there's a lot of political, geographical stuff going on at this time in history. You've got Assyria trying to be dominant. You've got Syria and Israel saying, no, we don't want to serve Assyria. You've got Egypt. You've got this place, the, the Nubians, the Ethiopians or Sudanese down here, and, and they're asserting power. And so all kinds of political and military stuff is going on. And they're sending envoys to try to make alliances. And here's God just sitting quietly, watching it all unfold. But as it all unfolds, none of it is outside of his control. None of it. And it's, it's the image of great moving about, of making alliances, of, of making deals, all this activity. And that is contrasted with peace and quietness and tranquility. God's not worried, is he? God's not worried. And the lesson, I think, is that Isaiah is saying to the people of Judah, you don't need to be worried either. God is quiet and patient and calm while all of this activity is going on. You as his people should also be calm and quiet and trusting, right? Trusting in the one who has all of this under his control. And so we don't, and that's a great lesson for us today too, isn't it? That the map has changed. The, the boundaries on the map have changed a lot from our time to 2,700 years ago. But there's still a lot of political and military and worldwide stuff going on around us, isn't there? And this country's doing this, and they're, they're trying to develop these weapons, and this country over here is trying to make this alliance, and, and this country over here is trying to take this territory, and, and they want these oil resources, and it, it can become overwhelming if you try to look at it all and see what all of this means geopolitically. And God is quiet. He's calm because he knows all that's going on and it's all moving toward his goal, isn't it? And so that's what he wants us to learn from this is we need to be patient and calm as well. Because when it comes time, the Lord is going to go and reap his harvest. So the image in verse four is almost like a calm, patient farmer, harvester, who has set everything up and now he's waiting for the harvest season to arrive. In other words, for, for some of these nations that are wicked, whether it be Cush or Egypt or Babylon or Assyria, God has a harvest for each one of them. And by harvest, Isaiah means judgment. And that harvest of judgment happens in God's timetable. He knows when that harvest is. And the picture here in this one is, is of a, a, a vineyard master, an owner of a vineyard, who, who knows his craft very well. And he knows when the grapes are to be planted. He knows when they're to be pruned, when these little branches and leaves are to be cut back so as to make the grapes grow fuller and, and tastier. 
he knows exactly how to handle his harvest and he knows when the grapes are going to be ready. And it's that image of God being the judge of the earth, waiting patiently for when he and his timing is going to judge these wicked nations. They will all be left to the mountain birds of prey and to the wild animals. The birds will feed on them all summer, the wild animals all winter. And generally speaking, whenever you see this image in scripture of leftovers thrown out to the animals, it's a message of judgment. It's a message of judgment that, that, that this is now this great nation who thought they were powerful. Now they're just left to the wild animals. It's a, it's an image of desolation of destruction. At that time, gifts will be brought to the Lord Almighty from a people tall and smooth-skinned, from a people feared far and wide, an aggressive nation of strange speech whose land is divided by rivers. The gifts will be brought to Mount Zion, the place of the name of the Lord Almighty. And when will this take place? It's hard to know for sure. But the image that Isaiah portrays is that it's almost like a reversal where in verses one and two, you have this strong people going, sending envoys, sending messengers, maybe to set up some kind of alliance, maybe sending them to Judah to say, you need to get on board with our program. If you want to be protected against Assyria, then you need to join with us and help us against Egypt. And, but what he does in this last verse is he turns it around and says, instead of these envoys coming to Judah, making demands, they're coming giving gifts. And it's verse seven is a picture of a future time. How far from Isaiah's time, it's hard to know. It could be looking to the far distant future when Israel, when God and his people are the center of the whole world. And nations, instead of being enemies of God's people, end up being friends of God's people. And they come and they offer gifts to the Lord at Mount Zion in worship. And so there's a great lesson there too. And that is, even though a lot of what God is doing is centered on on Judah and his people in the book of Isaiah, there's always an eye looking farther out, isn't there, to the nations. That, that God has a plan, not only of judgment, but also of grace and of hospitality, of welcoming to the nations when they come and bow before him and acknowledge him as the God of all the earth and bring their gifts of tribute to him. So for, for Judah, for Israel, for Cush, whatever the nation, the solution is look to your maker. Look to your maker instead of the works of your own hands. Because no man, spiritually speaking, has ever saved himself. Right? No one has ever saved themselves. No one can ever save themselves. And so going all the way back to the Garden of Eden, you've got Adam with his own hands sewing together fig leaves to cover himself in front of his maker. But what does God say? It's not what you make that counts. It's what I make. 
and God made it. God made the covering, and God clothed them with animal skins. He shed blood of an animal and took the skin of that sacrificial animal and covered them. And that's the message in Isaiah chapter 7 where we see, turn away from the works of your hands. False worship, idolatry, focus on self. Turn away from self and, and false worship and turn to the only one who can heal you, which is your maker. And it's the same message whether you're Judah or Israel or Syria or Cush. There's only one who can save you. And that is the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And we know him today as Jesus, the son of God. And so there's only one way. And so there's lots of great applications here. One, God's, God's rule over the nations, right? God is sovereign. If there's anything we can learn from chapters 13 to 23, it's that God rules over the nations. Another lesson is to, the, to God's people, because God rules over the nations, trust him, not people. Trust him, not your own wisdom. Trust him, not your political alliances. And also, God is the one who is to be worshipped. God is the one who is to be honored. Not anyone else, not any other God, but God and God alone. And so there's lots of great lessons. Even though this was written 2,700 years ago, very much that we can apply to our lives today and be reminded of as God's people.